Hello, my name is Kevin Riordan. I'm a military legal officer with the New Zealand Defence Force. And I'm also an le adjunct lecturer in law at Victoria University of Wellington. I was fortunate enough to be part of the New Zealand delegation to the Rome Conference on the establishment of an international criminal court. I was also involved in the subsequent PrepComs on the elements of crimes, as well as the Review Conference in Kampala. My interest in this subject is as a student and as a teacher and as a legal advisor to my government. But my interest also arises from a number of experiences I have had in operations throughout the world and having witnessed the result of international crime, having spoken with victims and also having dealt on a day-to-day -day basis with perpetrators of such crimes before they were arrested and while they were still in operation, so to speak. Today I'm going to talk about some very basic ideas about international criminal law and I am going to keep this presentation fairly broad because some of the very greatest scholars and jurists of our age have addressed particular issues in greater depth on this website and I urge you all to watch them. This lecture is intended for people who have not had much exposure to this field of law, not to experts in the subject, so it will not be a line-by-line -line examination of the various cases or the major instruments. Rather, it will be, as the title suggests, it will express some ideas about international criminal law. Recent developments in the field of prosecuting those responsible for grave breaches of international law, including the first ever trial before the International Criminal Court, have caused many in the international community to examine anew the fundamental basis in law and in fairness for trying individuals for their actions during armed conflict and other man-made calamities. In this lecture, I set out my view that international criminal trials are a necessary part of the development of international law and one which the international community is right to champion. I do not consider that there's any advantage in avoiding the detection and trial of international crimes any more than there is in respect of any other type of crime. I present a personal view which is unashamedly supportive of the concept of international criminal law. But as you will discover, not everyone shares that view and if you're interested in this subject, you would do well to examine their criticisms carefully. I'm now going to talk about the crimes. It's necessary at this point to define the area of law that we are discussing. And so the first idea we need to get across is that this is serious law. International criminal law is a body of law concerned with the apprehension, trial and punishment of persons who have committed offences which are described as the most serious crimes of international concern. The four crimes which are the backbone of the study are genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes and the crime of aggression. Now, The crime of genocide comprises a range of constituent crimes, all of which are committed with an uh, intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group as such. Crimes against humanity are a range of very serious crimes, sometimes referred to as, as odious crimes. They include, include murder and extermination, persecution and crimes of sexual violence, which constitute part of a widespread and systematic attack against any civilian population. This class arose out of the instruments authorising the trials at Nuremberg and Tokyo in response to the fact that many of the victims of Axis powers were not protected under the law of armed conflict. 
often because the atrocities practiced against them were the result of the actions of their own government, not that of the enemy. Crimes against humanity have since been included in the statutes of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and the Extraordinary Chamber of the Courts of Cambodia, as well as the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Crimes against humanity are generally associated with a state of armed conflict, but they need not necessarily be so. War crimes are those offences which contravene the laws of armed conflict, which is sometimes called the laws and customs of war or international humanitarian law. These are derived from treaties including the Hague Conventions of 1907, the Geneva Conventions of 1949, the Additional Protocols to the Geneva Conventions of 1977 and other specific treaty obligations. And they're also derived from customary international law, a point that I will return to later. And lastly, the crime of aggression, which is available against the leaders of nations or high military commanders who plan or conduct an aggressive war in breach of international law. The crime of aggression, which is sometimes also referred to as crimes against peace, did not exist before the drafting of the Nuremberg Charter. Since the completion of the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials, no subsequent international trials for aggression have proceeded. The task of delineating what exactly the crime of aggression was and how the International Court would exercise jurisdiction in respect of it proved to be so vexed a subject at the Rome Conference that it actually came to an end before a definition could be set or the modalities of how it would be tried established. In fact, it wasn't until June 2010 that the review conference of the Rome Statute in Kampala adopted a resolution which amended the Rome Statute to include a definition of crime of aggression, which was based on a United Nations General Assembly resolution 3314. And in this context, the, uh, the states agreed to qualify as aggression a crime committed by a political or a military leader, which by its character, gravity and scale constituted a manifest violation of the Charter. Now I should mention that some of these crimes overlap in a number of regards and which class is applicable depends on the resolution of certain preliminary factual and indeed jurisdictional questions, including for example whether there's an armed conflict in existence and if so, what type. But in any event, this is serious criminality of the type that the world should be most concerned about. So you're not going to end up in front of the International Criminal Court, for example, unless the attack on the civilian population in which you're involved was part of a widespread and systematic attack. The same is true in slightly different language in respect of war crimes, although it is possible to be involved in an isolated war crime. But now, as an aside, when you go through the crimes, you might give cause to wonder, as did Justice Christopher Werimantri in the International Court of Justice, although in a different context, why using an expanding bullet is specifically mentioned, while using a nuclear weapon is not. And if that's an interest, a question that interests you, you might look very carefully at the negotiating history of the weapons provisions of the Rome Statute. But the generality of the proposition remains, even though inconsistencies may appear. The emphasis on seriousness and gravity permeates through the whole of international criminal law. Even in respect of the ultimate crime, as some people describe it, of aggression, it's only manifest breaches of the United Nations Charter that will qualify. And to take a rather different perspective, 
you're not going to end up in front of the International Criminal Court, for example, if you're only 15 or 16 or 17 years of age. 18 years of age was a bright light limit, which was really agreed upon because of the simple unpalatability of holding up to trial a child for the world's worst and most serious offences. Now, other crimes such as piracy and slave trading, the transnational trade in narcotics, human smuggling, terrorism, are all regarded as crimes at international law, and the seriousness of those crimes cannot be doubted, but they have not yet been tried by international tribunals. They may, at some point in the future, become part of the focus of international criminal law in addition to those previously discussed. And so the second idea that comes out from this is that like all other areas of law, international criminal law cannot remain fixed. It must develop as the concerns of mankind develop. And the concerns of mankind are often very situational. It's not hard to imagine, for example, a situation which would cause the world community to include peacetime crimes against the environment, to take but one example, as being within this ambit as well. But just contemplating the currently accepted or so-called classic crimes of international criminal law, it can be seen that this is a topic which deals with the very darkest aspects of human nature. It's an area of law which codifies our legal response to acts motivated by barely imaginable hatred and disregard for the lives of others. It challenges us to understand the idea of there being a race or a group or a type of person that is so hated that an otherwise functioning human being would want to see it destroyed even down to the youngest child member or would want to attack or persecute or see it subject to mass rape or torture. To many of us who are blessed to come from countries that live in peace, the proposition seems ridiculous. However, sadly, to many people who come from lands blighted by decades of conflict and cruelty, who are themselves gripped by constant fear, it may well seem equally ridiculous to even question that reality. So we need to constantly remind ourselves of another important idea concerning international criminal law, which is that it's a law which addresses criminality arising in a highly aberrant or abnormal societal condition. There is, in all likelihood, no police force to enforce the law against murder in the middle of a genocide, and indeed it may well be the police who are performing the crimes. This fact means that many of the ordinary principles of criminal justice have to be applied in a rather special way. Now, there are innumerable examples of this, but to take one, a domestic law on self-defence may contemplate a situation in which the accused who uses violence against an assailant has many options, including calling the police or moving away from a potential attacker. It does not conceptualise a situation in which the risk of being killed by an assailant is the norm, not an aberration, or in which there are no options such as calling the police or moving away, since killing the enemy is not simply a right, but a duty. Before I move into the more detailed features of this law, I want to touch on the issue of why international criminal law has emerged in the way it has, or indeed, why it has emerged at all. International trials are, of course, primarily directed at providing justice in individual cases. However, they also serve other functions. They provide a legitimate forum for the denunciation of outrages against international law. In attacking the aura of impunity, 
often assumed by individuals who perpetrate such crimes, they contribute to their prevention. And I can assure you that many people who are doing the international dirty work, so to speak, are aware both of the existence of international criminal law and the downside of being caught up by it. In this respect, the entire framework of ICL provides a disincentive to those who harness barbarism. There is the constant risk of arrest, and the world becomes a somewhat small place when a significant number of states are committed to one's apprehension. And since there's no statute of limitation in respect of international crimes, that prospect never actually disappears while you draw breath, as some elderly tyrants have discovered to their displeasure. One of the most profound effects of international trials is to confront those responsible for breaches of law with their own actions. Many accused are willfully blind to what was going on around them and to the nature of the regime that they actively supported and from which they sought honour and advancement. One of the purposes of a trial is to confront such actors in a courtroom with the truth. Many of the accused at Nuremberg only really acknowledge the true nature of their actions, even to themselves, when forced to do so by skillful cross-examination. Trials publicise the content of international law, and they provide necessary legal support for those who refuse to take part in atrocity. And lastly, and very importantly, such trials provide a platform for victims to be heard. Which brings me to the next of the broad ideas about international criminal law, which is to remind ourselves that although it's unequivocally international law, it's also criminal law. And that means it's about people. The subject matter of international criminal law is people. At Nuremberg, the International Military Tribunal made a very significant statement in this regard. In finding that international law imposes duties and liabilities on individuals as well as upon states, the court observed that international crimes against international law are committed by men and women, not by abstract entities, and that only by punishing individuals who commit such crimes can the provisions of international law be enforced. Now, international criminal law is about accused people, obviously, but it's also about victims. It's also about some people who have special rights to protection or special duties, such as commanders who should have stopped events and didn't. But there's another type of people who are in a slightly mysterious way drawn into this equation, and we refer to them as the peoples of the world or the international community. Now this idea is very strongly set out in the preamble to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, but once again, it permeates the whole of international criminal law. And it's the involvement of this group, which in my view, makes international criminal law truly distinctive. Because international criminal law is based upon the conviction that an assault upon any of us is an assault upon all of us. That a genocide or a campaign of rape or persecution half a world away is in reality an attack on people everywhere. Now, the Latin scholars refer to this concept as ergo omnes, and it's an ultimate expression, it's its ultimate expression, is the concept of universal jurisdiction. Since such attacks are in effect against all of us, we all have a right to try them, and there exists a general duty to try or extradite persons against whom well-founded allegations are made. 
The focus of international criminal law is on natural persons. A corporation, for example, can't be indicted before the International Criminal Court, although there were a number of voices at Rome suggesting that they should be so liable, and some support for the idea as far back as Nuremberg. Corporations and organisations, people observed, can certainly profit from international crimes. Indeed, with the worldwide increase in the use of private military and security companies, interest in the idea of extending liability to companies has not entirely disappeared. It would be a simplification, of course, to say that because international criminal law is directed against natural persons, it's not about states. It's not directed at states. And a state cannot, for example, be indicted before the International Criminal Court, although this is a very common misconception that they can. A state is never going to appear before the International Criminal Court. State responsibility for international crime must be dealt with through other mechanisms, including the International Court of Justice. However, when one thinks about the crime of aggression, for example, there simply has to be some state involvement in there somewhere for the offence to exist. There must be an act of aggression before there can be a crime of aggression. Similarly, both crimes against humanity and genocide typically have a policy aspect, as have many war crimes. What is really meant by this expression is that people can't hide behind the actions of their state. So this is another very important idea that flows through international criminal law. Obedience to apparent law or superior orders which are manifestly in breach of international law is not a general excuse. Furthermore, official status produces no protections either. From the very earliest cases through to the present, the principle is simple. Being a president or a prime minister or a general or a soldier does not stop you also being a person. And as a person, you have responsibility for your own actions. I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of international criminal law, but I don't propose to engage in a detailed history of the idea of holding individuals to account for their crimes. Many more qualified speakers will do that in this series. I will make a few comments, however, about where we came from to get from there to here. Now, lectures on the law of armed conflict often make mention of particular individuals who, throughout history, had faced trial for crimes that are now within the Rome Statute. But in truth, such trials were very rare. <clears throat> and the fact that we all use pretty much the same examples may be proof of this fact. As late as 1883, the great British jurist Sir James Fitzjames Stephen observed that if, for military reasons, unarmed prisoners, after all resistance had ceased, were put to death by a general, I do not think that a court of law would inquire as to whether his conduct was proper or not. Plans to hold Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany to account for the events of World War I came to nothing, and other national trials were a hit and miss affair, which typically only dealt with a very few offenders. The idea of trying those guilty of outrages against international law is one of very slow gestation with no historical, historical continuity, and many actions which would appall us now went unpunished in their own times. What we discover, therefore, is a picture of haphazard and all too slow development of legal norms. But then, this is equally true of the development of many domestic legal systems. What it took from, for the law to move from the position discussed before to one of personal accountability is a revolution in legal thinking. And that revolution was brought about by the crimes committed during World War II. 
Now, one part of the Nuremberg judgment always sticks in my mind in this regard. In the early stages of the Russian campaign of World War II, German Admiral Canaris advised his superiors that to kill or abuse prisoners of war was, regardless of the state of treaty law, contrary to the laws and customs of war. Field Marshal Keitel, who was the titular Chief of Staff of the Third Reich's Armed Forces, replied, and he said, the objections arise from military concept of chivalrous warfare. This is the destruction of our ideology. I therefore approve and back the measures. The measures he was talking about led to the death of thousands of Soviet prisoners in Nazi hands. Now this exchange between these two high-ranked officers is interesting from a number of perspectives. It highlights, for example, the fact that certain rules of the law of armed conflict can be regarded as, regarded as customary, even though technically they're not demanded by the clauses of a treaty. In terms of legal ideology, however, there's another message. And in this respect, Keitel's words were perhaps more prophetic than he thought. The ideology that the conduct of military operations was regulated only by internally governing rules of chivalry was indeed destroyed. The Allies resolved to try war criminals for their actions, and the widely broadcast Moscow Declaration of 1943 let the perpetrators of war crimes and crimes against humanity know what was coming. Nuremberg and Tokyo were therefore the first really serious attempts at implementing international criminal trials. However, the birth of international criminal law was not an easy one, even in those extreme circumstances. And from their inception, the trials were criticised in some quarters and continue to be so. The criticisms fall into the following general propositions. That such trials are victor's justice. That is to say, they are revenge, not justice. That defendants were found guilty by association or the victims of the so-called soldier's dilemma, namely they were innocent agents forced into criminality by superior orders. That the defendants were charged with offences which the judges too were guilty, the Tukoke argument, and that the defendants were tried for offences which were not crimes at the time that they were committed, which is sometimes referred to as nullum crimen sine lege. Throughout this, um, although support for aspects of these allegations can be made out, there are also strong grounds for refuting many aspects of them. But that unfortunately is a task I must leave to another speaker. And although the critics of military tribunals are strong in their opinions, alternatives to the trials are very seldom offered. Simply allowing the perpetrators of those horrific crimes to go unpunished and to return to the devastated communities that they had so damaged seems hardly feasible. Some actually favoured a far simpler solution by which persons who all right-thinking people considered to be war criminals would be tried rapidly by a field court-martial condemned to death and shot without ceremony. What we would have learned from such an exercise must be doubtful. But in any event, it was not the path that was followed, and in the wake of the trials, the fledgling United Nations adopted the Nuremberg Principles which whatever criticisms can be laid at the door of the tribunals themselves gave a very wide measure of international endorsement to the concept of individual criminal liability for, individual, for international crimes and that also set out the basis on which such trials should be conducted. But as we know, the Nuremberg and Tokyo precedents 
were slow to sprout offshoots. The Cold War, at least in part, saw to that. There were important domestic trials during this period, of which the trials of Lieutenant Kelly and Captain Medina for the murders at My Lai 4 in Vietnam were the best known, but far from the only examples. And it was not until a revitalised United Nations Security Council came to deal with the situation in former Yugoslavia and Rwanda that the idea of international criminal tribunals again bore fruit. And in my view, those tribunals have made an enormously significant contribution to the development of international law. And there's one particular area in which their effort has been important, and this is in respect of sexual offending. Crimes of rape and other sexual violence were barely mentioned at Nuremberg and Tokyo, despite the fact that such violence was practiced on an almost epidemic scale. The ICTY and the ICTR did not shy from recording the details of such offending, and they drew it to the attention of the world community. Subsequently, a number of so-called hybrid tribunals arose, including those dealing with Sierra Leone, Cambodia and Timor all of which have added to our understanding of this part of the law. And with the birth of the International Criminal Court, we have now entered another era. The catch cry of the movement to create an International Criminal Court was an end to impunity. Although it traces its ancestry back to 1951, the recent history of the International Criminal Court begins in 1996 with a UN General Assembly resolution establishing a preparatory commission to complete a consolidated draft statute. The arrival of the International Criminal Court has been one of the most significant developments in international law, despite its admittedly slow start. The statute of the court has codified many areas of international law, such as command responsibility and the defense of superior orders. It also expresses the nature of certain crimes in a way that will greatly affect our understanding of the law of armed conflict. The further development of elements of offenses has proved to be an integral part of this codification process. Which brings me to the next important idea about international criminal law that I would like to suggest to you. And that is that because it's the law which deals with events that arise suddenly and out of unforeseen calamities, the actors involved are often going to find themselves a bit surprised by the application of the law to their actions. Which may cause us to consider why this might be. Now, the Rome Statute has a hierarchy of legal sources in which it draws, and the foremost, not surprisingly, is the Rome Statute, the elements of crimes made under Article 9, and the court's own rules of procedure and evidence. The court can then make use, where appropriate, of applicable treaties, and it can also make use of the principles and rules of international law, including the established principles of the international law of armed conflict. And failing that, it can make use of general principles of law derived by the court from the national laws of the legal systems around the world, although not if those laws are inconsistent with the Rome Statute or with internationally recognised standards and norms. So before the International Criminal Court, the major source of international criminal law is treaty law. And the Rome Statute enumerates the crimes within the jurisdiction of the court expressly and exclusively. One of the difficulties faced by earlier tribunals was that the crimes within their jurisdiction were expressed in very broad terms, requiring a large degree of interpretation which was derived to a large degree from the findings of the various tribunals as to the content of customary international law. 
Now, because it's based on the conduct of states in accordance with the assumption of legal obligation, customary international law is not what we would call black letter law. It's not set out definitively anywhere. And although sources like the International Committee of the Red Cross's Customary International Humanitarian Law Study may assist us in this regard, no book or study can be regarded as the final work on this topic. Furthermore, customary international law is constantly evolving. As one of New Zealand's most distinguished judges, Sir Kenneth Keith, once observed, customary international law can change from day to day, or at least from year to year, without formal notification, which is not usually the case with respect to penal law. So if the defendants at Nuremberg and Tokyo found themselves surprised to find that aggressive war was a crime, which it had not been previously generally conceived of, or that cruelly mistreating members of their own population was a crime against humanity, their surprise might have been matched by that of certain defendants in later cases. For example, some accused were doubtless surprised when they discovered that the close connection of the actions of another state in their actions converted what might otherwise have been common or garden brutality into a breach of the Geneva Conventions. And if you're interested in this idea, you should look at the decision of the Appeals Chamber of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia in a decision called the Tadic Jurisdiction Appeal. Other accused may have been equally surprised to find that their acts of rape or sexual violence would be equated with torture or even genocide. And again, if you're interested in the development of this idea, you should start with the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia and Rwanda in cases such as Forenzija and Ahiasu and follow their progress through the subsequent cases. Accused before the Special Court for Sierra Leone may have been similarly surprised to find that the use of child soldiers was not only a breach of international law, but a crime under international law. And if you want to expand on that idea, you should read the decision in that regard, including the dissenting judgment, in the case of Chief Sam Hinger Norman. And some have argued that in pursuing the greater interests of justice, these tribunals have been too expansive in their readiness to discover rules of customary international law, or have extended grounds for criminal liability, such as joint criminal enterprise and superior responsibility, beyond the natural bounds of such doctrines. However, whatever sympathy or legal concern we may feel for accused who find themselves on the wrong side of a developing legal norm must, in my view, be tempered by the fact that none of these acts enjoy prima facie appearance of, le of legitimacy. They were, to use the language of the 1899 Hague Conventions, contrary to the dictates of the public conscience. The Rome Statute provided states with an opportunity to endorse, or not, the assessment of some of those decisions. A frequent injunction at the Rome Conference was that the delegations were not there to make new law or invent new crimes, but really simply to list those that existed already. So in respect of the provisions relating to genocide, for example, we see an essential replication of the language of the Genocide Convention of 1948. And as I have noted in respect to the crime of aggression, this situation was not so simple. In respect of crimes against humanity too, the situation was far from straightforward. For although the expression had been used in a sort of legal sense for over a hundred years, there was no statute setting out precisely what crimes against humanity were. Previous examples had always linked the crimes to a particular war, this was the case with Nuremberg, or a time and place. 
as was the case in respect of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia and Rwanda. The Rome Statute, however, enumerates some crimes that had not perhaps been conceived of as separate from their constituent parts before the conference. And one example is the crime of forced pregnancy. Describing the history of that provision and the significance of the definition is beyond the scope of this lecture. However, it illustrates another important idea about international uh, criminal law, which is the hortatory effect, the power that naming a despicable act as a separate offence brings with it. Even the situation, of course, in respect of war crimes was not simple. Sole reliance on the Geneva Convention's list of grave breaches essentially froze the law in 1949 and therefore omitted some matters of very great concern to the international community, such as the use of child soldiers. Secondly, the grave breaches provisions were addressed solely to international armed conflict, not internal armed conflict. And lastly, they were really addressed at the plight of victims of war, but were largely silent on the means and methods of war. While the Geneva Conventions enjoyed almost complete universality in 1998, a situation which I might add is now complete, the same could not be said of additional Protocols 1 and 2. Grave breaches of Geneva Protocol 1 were not included within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court since a number of states negotiating the Rome Statute were not uh, parties to that protocol, and Protocol 2 has no grave breaches provisions. This produced a search for the definitive list of war crimes derived from customary international law, to a degree employing language that had an almost per se objection to using language straight out of the additional protocols. And this pro process proved contentious at Rome, and this is perhaps best illustrated by the fact that the Rome Statute actually contains a provision, Article 124, by which parties on agreeing to the statute can actually excuse themselves or opt out of its war crimes provisions for a period of seven years. The rationale for this provision has been somewhat criticised, but most generously it can be described as providing an opportunity for particular provisions to crystallise into customary law if they were not recognised as being such already. The fact that only two states, given time for reflection, actually availed themselves of this provision suggests that the list that was come up with in Rome was more accurate and acceptable than had been given credit for at the time. The continued inclusion of Article 124, incidentally, was debated at Kampala, and perhaps surprisingly, it has survived as part of the statute. Which leads us to another series of ideas about international criminal law, which is the relationship between the political forces of international relations and the interests of justice. Now, to me, this idea has two main elements, how you get in front of an international court or tri tribunal, and what happens when you get there. This first aspect of this idea is getting from the crime to the court. And in its infancies, that process had a very simple precondition. First, you had to lose the war. The victor powers of World War II put the vanquished on trial. It was an unpalatable truth and one that has tarnished perceptions in some quarters of the process then and now. The second generation process required the intervention of the United Nations Security Council. That is to say, your actions had to constitute a threat to international peace and security. Many appalling crimes never reached this level, or even if they did, would not have survived the use of the veto power. The risk of politicisation was never far from the minds of those drafting the statute of the International Criminal Court. 
And of course, with the International Criminal Court, the roads to trial have widened considerably. Any state that is a party to the Rome Statute can refer a situation to the prosecutor. You don't have to be the victor or even a victim. That, uh, that can be a referral in respect of an event alleged to have occurred on the state's own territory, a so-called self-referral, or it can be a referral relating to an event on another state's territory. The United Nations Security Council, acting under Chapter 7 of the Charter, retains its power to seek a judicial response to threats against peace and security, which it's so far done in respect of Darfur and Sudan and Libya. Lastly, investigation and trial can be initiated by the prosecutor on the basis of information he or she receives. Now, a number of people and organisations have sent communications to the prosecutor about a lot of different circumstances and many of them have been found to be outside the jurisdiction of the court. But this power is revolutionary, and therefore, not surprisingly, is subject to some significant restraints. It cannot be exercised without the authority of the pretrial chamber of the court. Even so, further jurisdictional safeguards are in place, except in respect of situations referred to, by the, uh, referred to the prosecutor by the United Nations Security Council, the International Criminal Court will exercise its jurisdiction only with the consent of the state on the territory of which the crime has occurred, which extends also to its vessels and aircraft, or the state of which the person accused of the crime is a national. Now this does allow, of course, for the court to deal with the nationals of a state which is not a party to the Rome Statute, where the alleged offence took place on the territory of a state party a feature which has caused a degree of unhappiness to some non-state parties. This is even extended to the use of a provision of the statute, Article 98, to ensure through bilateral agreements that the referral does not take place. I think some observation on the role of judges is also worthwhile. The Indian judge at the Tokyo trials, Justice Pal, examined the objection of political, the political element of war crimes trials, and he stated the judges here, no doubt, are from the different victor nations, but they are here in their personal capacities. One of the essential factors usually considered in the selection of members of such tribunals is moral integrity. This, of course, embraces more than ordinary fidelity and honesty. It includes a measure of freedom from prepossessions, a readiness to face the consequences of views which may not be shared, a devotion to the judicial processes, and a willingness to make sacrifices which the performance of judicial duties may involve. The birth of the International Criminal Court addresses some of the more obvious concerns raised in respect of earlier trials. Judges are no longer selected from the victor powers, but on a basis that ensures both expertise and a wide representational pool. Now, no human being could be totally oblivious to the obstacles to objectivity that the political aspects of the international crimes themselves must create. But just as Powell recognised, as we should recognise, that the trials are conducted by humans and that it is with human justice that the accused must be content. The last idea I would like to briefly explore is the way that international criminal law coexists with the important concept of sovereignty. There's no question that in our modern interconnected world there are many strands of international obligation and relationships which challenge the once preeminent status of statehood. But the fact remains that the state is one of the most vital elements of international legal system. And it's also true that 
the jurisdictions, and especially criminal jurisdictions, which states have developed over decades, or indeed centuries, represent by and large the consent of the people of that state to be dealt with in accordance with the laws that they are more or less comfortable with, and to be tried by courts and tribunals that have some investment in the society they are judging. In the ideas of critics, International criminal justice always suffers from this aura of a lack of connectivity with the people it's addressed to. It has at times the feeling of a democratic deficit. Its laws come ready-made from an international process of which most people have little knowledge and even less chance to shape or influence. So when you boil this whole grab bag of ideas down, it has a sort of central root which is that sovereign nations have the right to set the rules for their own people, and that an international court sitting over this right constitutes a fundamental assault on state sovereignty. Now, where all of these arguments pushed, of course, was in the direction of what, in my view, was one of the most important conceptual aspects of the Rome Statute, which is that of complementarity. The International Criminal Court is not a supranational court. It doesn't sit over the legal systems of states in that respect. It is, in fact, a type of court of last resort. The state that has the primary national interest to try an alleged offender does, in fact, have primacy in doing so. Where the International Criminal Court comes into play is when a state is unwilling or unable to try the offence itself. Complementarity works in two distinct ways. First, it very significantly overcomes much of the sovereignty objection, which I referred to earlier. Delegations at Rome were able to report to their capitals that states were essentially guaranteed a fundamental check on the admissibility of the cases before the court. And that mechanism is simply to investigate all well-founded allegations of international criminality made against their nationals and to genuinely deal with those cases in accordance with universally accepted standards of justice. This, I might add, is something which they were under an international obligation to do, in, if they could, in any event. The second major effect is perhaps more subtle and more enduring. The effect of the complementarity provision was that many states conducted a sort of audit of their domestic law to ensure that they could, in fact, try individuals for crimes enumerated in the statute. This process has clearly heightened public and political awareness of the crimes set out there. And it has enabled legislatures around the world to debate and bring into law a lot of international provisions which were previously only really familiar at an academic level or were conceived of as somebody else's problem. In this respect, the Rome Statute must be judged to have enjoyed a large measure of success even if the court never succeeded in convicting anybody. Now, some states have advanced objections on the basis that the Constitution did not allow for submission to external court, while others have evinced an intention to change their constitutions to do so. Some, some states had purely pragmatic objections or felt that the concept did not allow for their particular position in world affairs. Some wanted a stronger role for the United Nations, and in particular the Security Council, and other states felt that to do so would be only to ensure that situations from weak and friendless states would only be the only ones that would arise before the court, or indeed that the veto power would ensure that no situation ever did. So this raises a second important aspect, and that's the notion of independence. Although the court works in association with the United Nations, it's not an organ of the United Nations. Its existence is owed entirely to the Rome Statute, which states are free to adhere to or not. 
The fact that 120 nations have chosen to do so is strongly indicative of the fact that they recognise that membership is an exercise of their sovereignty, not an assault upon it. Now, there is some unfinished business. Notable is the continuing distinction between international armed conflict and non-international armed conflict, for whereas the, sta uh, the statute as agreed upon contains 26 discrete war crimes derived from customary law applicable to international armed conflict, non-international armed conflict attracts only 12. The Kampala Review Conference took steps towards widening the ambit of this provision by extending crimes relating to expanding bullets and poisonous gases to non-international conflict as well. And there are other aspects which those of you who are interested in could look further at. But unfortunately it is time for me to draw my discussion to a conclusion. And in conclusion I would like to make a few personal observations about the nature of international criminality. It may well be that men and women of sufficient moral stature to take a stand against brutality, to turn their hand against the genocide or against crimes of humanity while they are occurring, are statistically speaking not so very numerous. It's my guess that they are a minority. And it's also my guess that persons who actually want to commit murders, rapes, cruelty and mutilation are also a minority, perhaps not greater or smaller than the first group. And there is no argument which people like myself can advance to a group that wants to do these things that will make them not want to do these despicable deeds, except perhaps one, which is that if we catch you, we will try you. But major international crimes cannot be perpetrated by such a small group alone. The greater part of a population, and therefore naturally the greater part of any army, will follow whichever group is in the ascendancy. We encounter this disturbing feature again and again in the course of, for example, international peacekeeping. We are repelled not only by the activities of those who actually engage in atrocity, but also perhaps a greater number who do not torture and mutilate themselves, but are content that it should be done. At the heart of every criminal justice system there is a principle which tries and punishes criminals for the sake of example. And war crimes trials and international crimes therefore provide a disincentive for both the wicked and by far more numerous, the weak. This can never be an excuse for, for individual injustice, but it can't be denied as a rationale for the decision to try people at all. It's incumbent upon all of us to send a clear message as to which group of people the force of the law lends its hand, and trial of the inhumane is one way of doing that. Thank you for your attention.